I'm Barry Fern, and this is the Leading Conversations podcast, brought to your ears wherever you're listening, in partnership with Lane Media and the Marketing Society Scotland. Welcome back if you've tuned in before, and if you're a new listener, then thank you for joining us. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Steph Halliday from Denham Associates and John Bocher from Callow International. John is the co-founder of Spirit Level Associates, who have been focused on helping organisations build and align their employer and consumer brands. Steph is the Client Relationship Director at Denham Associates, a specialist recruitment agency of marketing, finance, technology, communications and digital professionals. Hi Barry. Hello Barry. Thanks for coming along. Today we're talking about strong employer brands and particularly about the importance of having an authentic employer brand. We're going to tap into John and Steph's expertise, both from their past experience and their present roles at the coalface of a good employer brand. So welcome, John and Steph. Let's start from the beginning. Please tell us a little about how you started out in your respective careers. John? Blimey, how long have we got, Barry? Uh, (laughs) As long as you like. (laughs) (laughs) I'm somewhat long in the tooth, I suspect, compared to uh, quite a lot of of our listeners. I started off... uh, actually getting a job as part of the milk round with Unilever where I worked as a marketing trainee and uh, after five years I took a job working for what was uh, in those days called Scottish and Newcastle who subsequently were acquired by a combination of Heineken and Carlsberg. The UK operation became Heineken UK and I worked at SNN and then Heineken for most of my career so so drinks is I guess what I would describe as my home industry, uh, across a variety of roles, mainly in marketing. But towards the end of my time, I spent a couple of years as effectively a sales director and then was asked to take on a job in HR, which was a surprise to me and probably to the rest of the organization because I didn't know very much about HR. I was fortunate enough to, to be surrounded by a lot of very good people. And Uh, I subsequently spent uh, about four years as a HR director. Then I uh, was asked by Heineken, who by that stage had acquired the business, to go over to Mexico to lead the integration of an acquisition that they'd made. And so I went over and subsequently spent three years working in Mexico, first as a leader of that integration and then stayed on as their commercial director. And then I spent two years working in Singapore, for Carlsberg, because I thought it was only fair. I'd work for Heineken, I should work for (laughs) Carlsberg as MD of the operation. And then I came back to the UK around about uh, the end of 2015 and set up Spirit Level Associates with a guy called Charlie Robertson and a lady called Lisa Sutherland. And that is, I guess, brings brings us more or less up to date. I've done a few other bits and pieces, but they're they're the main ones. And in the interest of time, I'll stop there. Well, what a varied career, and I'm sure that's going to help kind of provide some more context. And Steph, what about yourself? How did you start out? Why, how are you here today? So I think probably my trajectory is quite different from a lot of the marketing professionals that you'll speak to on the podcast. Um, there's not many um, school leavers who probably are aspiring to a career in recruitment, and it's something that you tend to fall into. When I was at school, I actually wanted to be a journalist. I was um, really interested in current affairs and politics. I loved writing. I thought it'd be great to be able to get to the crux of stories and work in media. But I went to an all-girls school. And if you showed any propensity towards male-led subjects, you were really channeled into that. And I happened to have 
a bit of an aptitude for coding and programming. So I was persuaded to apply for computer science at uni. Um, I was told if I didn't align that to business, I would never be able to carve out a career in this new fangled industry sector. So I did business systems programming and infrastructure design. And it was a brilliant course and I enjoyed it, but it was the wrong course for me. It wasn't aligned to who I was or what gave me energy at all. And in actual fact, I'd been in a all-girls school, very small, 50 people in my sixth year when I was leaving. Turned up in Newcastle in this very vibrant, diverse, dynamic city. Didn't know what had hit me. I was 17 and living in a flat with 19 to 22-year-olds. Turned up on my day one at my course. And although my specialist course was pretty intimate, the feeder course was 500 people. Wow. Guys, I was one of five women. And I say women, I was a girl. I was totally overwhelmed, completely intimidated. So uni was a bit of an endurance piece for me. I stuck my head down, delivered, got my degree, did well, but came out and thought, Christ, what am I going to do? <laughs> so I went to what I thought was a technology specialist recruiter. Uh, but it turned out that they did a subdivision of recruitment called Rectorec, Recruitment to Recruitment. So they okay. recruited recruitment professionals. Mm. So they introduced me to technology recruiters thinking maybe I could use my specialism within recruitment, but I was still going to have to immerse myself in that technology market, which just felt misaligned. Not right, yeah. So they offered me the chance to interview for a job with them in Rec to Rec. And I wasn't really entirely sure what they did. It was quite unique. Um, but I thought if, they, if I've been very honest about who I am and what I can do and they think that there's an alignment, well, I may as well see where it can go. So the next thing I was on a plane down to London trying to convince a board of directors that I could do this job that I wasn't entirely sure even how to qualify. And I got the job, which Fantastic. was the first bit of great fortune because in JPA they taught me executive search back before LinkedIn was a thing, back before there was Facebook. So it was very about research, much about research and market mapping and really creating a network, which I loved because it was all about people. Mm -hmm. um, and that took me on a journey to delivering international recruitment for international brands, um, owning markets. And then I moved on to work for one of my clients, which was a fast-paced growth organization, really aggressive onto VC-backed companies where I got operational exposure across you know, the, the workings of a very uh, lean business structure. And I've partnered with some of the, the best brands in the world, the most recognised brands, but also worked with some brand new innovative startups to create teams. So it's been, it's been a wild journey, but it's taken me full circle because I used to recruit for Denim. Yeah, back yeah. in the day, um, 18 years ago. And now I am back actually working in Denim, which is great. So... And at Denim, I work on a team of, what have we got now? We've got four um, specialists living across sectors in marketing within my team um, across seven, for me, individual industry sectors. So it's been great. Two very varied uh, backgrounds then, and, <laughs> yes. and dare I say, some some expertise to bring to this really interesting and quite nuanced discussion today. So let's start from the start. For the benefit of, of our sort of broad variety of, of listeners, what exactly do we mean by an employer brand? Steph? For me, it is taking the principles of the brand and the proposition to market and really establishing what that means to the employees, establishing who the business is, what's happening in the culture, what makes us who we are, and finding ways to effectively promote that internally take it to market externally and ensure that you're able to position your business effectively to get the right people and get the right results. Well said. John? Yeah, I would uh, absolutely support what Steph is saying. I, I guess there's a, there's another aspect to it, which is about uh, actually 
also engaging with the people that you that you have at the moment. So so if you look at the CIPD definition of employer branding, they they describe it as as such: the way in which organisations differentiate themselves in the labour market, enabling them to recruit, retain, and engage the right people. And the right people, I think, is a really important part mm. of that. Yeah, it should connect with the organisation's values and must run consistently through its approach to people management. Now, if you try and unpick that a little bit, the first thing to say, I think, is that employer brands operate like any form of brands. So what makes a brand a strong brand? Well, differentiation, that's first and foremost what drives value for organisations. Why organisations bother investing in brands is because they hope that it will create a form of differentiation in the minds of the consumer, or in this case, the employee. In other words, that you perceive that that organization or that brand is offering you something you can't get from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then in the context of employer branding, you may want to go and work for that organization as opposed to another one. Obviously, in the context of margarine or whatever it happens to be as a consumer, then you're prepared to pay a small premium for that brand versus others. So that's, you know, 101 of why invest in brands, be they employer brands or other forms of brands. But there are two other things that you need to be a strong brand, and that's also true of employer brands. You need relevance, because if you're offering something that people just aren't interested in, or is perhaps ahead of its time, which has happened occasionally, you're not going to get the cut through, you're not going to get the sales, or you're not going to get people applying. And the other thing you need is credibility or authenticity. Mm. They're, they're both sides of the same coin. In other words, you can't offer something which subsequently you can't deliver on. And that's particularly true, I think, in the in the context of employer branding. Because if you create this mirage of what it's like to work somewhere, and on day one or in the first year you find out that life is very different there, then you have a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and I think there might be a few uh, anecdotes of that from uh, people that listen to this podcast that I've spoken to recently. <laughs> Steph, looking at life through a slightly different lens, you speak to talented people every day for new roles. Mm -hmm. What are the current trends and key discussion points in terms of what employees are specifically looking for when it comes to employer brands? Authenticity, which we've discussed, I think, um, coming into the pandemic and then through and enduring through the pandemic and coming out the other side has completely changed to some degree what's at the forefront of people's minds. Um, because of the, I guess, the push towards hybrid working, remote working and that flexibility piece, apart from the operational element of that being a driver, people are looking for businesses who have a very strong employer brand so that even if you're working remotely even if you're in a hybrid model you're still very much part of that culture and that's been one of the biggest challenges in the changing market how do you really define your culture and ensure that it's lived and breathed and is 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 the organization when you could have a disparate workforce so that's a key thought for people what are we getting into throughout the onboarding process what's our experience of the of the business and is it true to self that's that's a key point Thanks, Steph. And John, I'm intrigued by your juxtaposition of experience in HR and marketing director roles. I mean, one, that's pretty rare, I would imagine. But two, that must give you quite a unique kind of insight to how modern organisations need to join up as much as possible in those two contexts. V very much so, Barry. And it was precisely for that reason that we set up Spirit Level, because uh, I think all three of us, Charlie and Lisa and I, had identified that there was a disconnect 
in a lot of organizations. Uh, to, to give you an extreme example, you, you will still to this day find organizations that preach love and harmony to their customers and consumers and behave like the Taliban internally. <laughs> and you just can't get away with it anymore. There is so much clarity in the world. Uh, you know, I'd argue in some cases too, too much transparency in the sense that you're constantly asked for feedback both as a consumer and a customer. And indeed, if you're a disgruntled employee, if you're one of those employees that uh, bought into something that you were being told and found that it was very, very different, you can tell the world very, very quickly and easily, despite what Elon Musk is trying to do. Absolutely. So uh, whether it be on social media, whether it be through websites like Glassdoor, if the reality of working in an organization is different to what that organization is telling the outside world, it's going to get out. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as a marketeer, you're constantly thinking about brands. And if you're doing your job well and trying to create value for an organization, as I say, you're thinking about differentiation. You know, what can I say about my brand, which makes it look and feel different to those other brands? It's exactly the same, I think, for employer brands, because there is a really intense war for talent. Mm -hmm. There's yeah, no getting yeah. away from that. And once you get those people in, the other side of the equation is you have to try and get the most from them in a good way, not not in a sort of slavish, you know, I want you to work all the hours that exist way, but in a way where you think each individual here has got capabilities. Yeah. If I can find a way of harnessing those capabilities, my organization is going to benefit and when you when you consider that roughly one in two people who are at work are pretty disengaged, th the opportunity to transform the way your organization works is enormous, absolutely enormous. Yeah. So I think anybody who isn't thinking about employer brands is is absolutely missing a trick, first point. Second point, when you think about your employer brand, the best way to do so is to think about it in the context of, well, what am I saying to the outside world and how much of that is going to be relevant to my employer brand? If you can create that alignment, you're in the best position and you're going to ensure that every investment you make in getting consumers or customers to love your brand, you can also leverage to get employees to love your brand. In other words, your organization. I wonder how much that it's kind of on everybody's lips a bit more now or higher in the consciousness because of COVID and the acceleration of what's changed in the last couple of years. So I'd just like to talk a little bit more about the post-COVID working world. Um, many companies are still finding their feet in terms of what's right for them in terms of flexible working and specifically the balance between hybrid working, uh, you know, the balance of in-office versus remote. I've just uh, been down in London a couple of days this week speaking to other agency owners about kind of what they're doing and how it works. And there's some fascinating stories about how it's not working as well as some really interesting stories about you know uh, companies that seem to have found the right balance for them john i'm interested in your take here there's unlikely to be a one-size-fits-all best practice reality but what does good look like in your opinion in the context of hybrid working i think the best position to be in is where you allow employees to determine within reason how they want to go about doing their job. You know, if I put my HR hat on, the most basic thing of all is when you turn up as an employee in the morning, you know what's expected of you. 
And so what good organizations do is they set clear objectives, but they say, look, within reason, you tell me how you want to go about achieving them. And I think the same is true of working patterns. You say to people, look, we need you to be in the office one or two days a week. Otherwise, it's really difficult to create those, those, that sort of team bonding that we know helps to form organizations that are effective and, and efficient. But other than that, if you want to come and work from the office because it's a better place than your own home, that's fine. Come and do it. If you want to work from home because you've got a long commute or you find it helpful when you just got to concentrate, get your head down and do stuff, that's absolutely fine as well. So I think the more that organizations can allow employees to choose for themselves, the better. And where it goes wrong, it's because you have mistrust in the organization. They think, oh, people are going to shirk if if I'm not keeping an eye on them. And then you hear these horrific stories about spyware being put on people's Hmm. laptops and goodness what else. Honestly, if you don't trust people, then they shouldn't be working in your organization. I couldn't agree more. So, So sort it out. And the other thing is, if you're managing by objectives, if you're making it clear what's expected, why should you care? how somebody is going about doing doing yep. what they're doing. Uh, just one, one uh, quick anecdote. When I worked in Mexico, um, the HR director, because uh, I, I was the commercial director, so I had ma- mainly a team of marketeers working for me. And one day the HR director came in. It was very early on in my tenure there. And he gave me a sheet of paper. And he said, here you go. Here are the, here are the times that people in your department are coming into work. And I said, okay well what am i meant to do with this well it tells you you know who's on time and who isn't so well isn't that important well why is it important because they could be coming in early and scratching their backsides and be on facebook what i'm really interested in is what the outputs are and frankly if you've got somebody who's so brilliant they can get everything done in four hours good on them that's absolutely great I mean, you could take it further and say as an organization, well, you should be engaging with them to see what else they could be doing in in the time that they have spare. But the broader point is I'd much rather have quality than quantity. Mm -hmm, And I think as as an organization, if you can get your head around that and stop being so obsessed by what people are doing at, you know, 9.17 in the morning and more about, well, what what are they actually producing? I I think organizations will benefit from that. Thanks, John. Steph, anything to add in terms of what you're hearing, who you're speaking to, best practice, anecdotes from industry at the moment? I've got too many to mention, probably. I mean, first of all, if I draw it back to us at Denham, we've probably provided a really good example. I mean, it doesn't work for everybody, first of all. Remote and hybrid working, it won't work for everybody. So, And there's no one-size-fits-all. But with us, we have what we call the Denham Work Your Way program program so basically we can we can choose how we work and it is output focused it's output measured it doesn't matter if people want to work from a coffee shop or their homes or whatever it's, it's output measured and i think that when you have a maturity in your your staff you can do that the danger there is when you're hiring fresh talent and people who require training and mentoring because there's definitely gaps that then happen and how do they you know, do that evolution of training through almost osmosis is, is gone and they also don't get the cultural piece of the office and the, the etiquette that goes around it. But in terms of hiring, it open, opens up so many different options, um, particularly in Scotland where it's such a challenge to hire and really get world-class talent. If we're not bound by a you know 30-minute commute to get to the office, then it opens up all sorts of opportunities, which can only be a good thing. 
as the pandemic unfolded, I suppose if there was if there was only one thing that could have been a positive that came out of the pandemic, it's maybe that it did expedite the thought of flexible working because the whole office piece was a bit of a construct that came post-industrial revolution. We created the office environment and the, the structure that went around it. But technology means that we don't need to rely on that anymore. So why not utilise that to its best ability? We would never have been able to test it the way that we did as an entire workforce had it not been for the pandemic. So we were able to really see the results and all take the risk at the same time. And it's what got us through. But coming out the back of it, you know, I had candidates who would say to me, Steph, I will never work in an office environment again. That's it. I won't step foot over a door. I can do it remotely. I've proven it. There is a sense now that I'm seeing candidates who had that mentality coming back and saying, well, I wouldn't mind being a bit in the office because, you know, I actually do miss the environment that creates and the social aspect and the collaboration and the creativity that kind of gets lost. Similarly, businesses that invested enormously to facilitate the flexibility in the remote working and really had an opportunity to run with it. We're seeing a little bit of the traditional, maybe because of the concern in the markets at the moment too, but a traditional mindset coming back in, you know, we need to get people back. How do we get people back? I think if we can find the blend, as, as John said, about what works for the individual and being able to facilitate that on an outputs-based assessment, that's when it works best. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's also, you know, my first-hand learning as well. And it says we tried different things. We tried different uh, approaches to it. And, and you know, this isn't necessarily a conversation about all of the things that have and haven't worked. But there's certainly some things that I can relate to from, from hearing you both talk about learning by osmosis and the importance of the team being together. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's, there's definitely not a right or wrong for all companies and a one size on this. But when I do hear some stories, again, not necessarily locally about some organ organizations with hundreds of staff and they've got 15% occupancy in their offices that cannot last no. especially when they've got big glass buildings in London and that sort of thing you know <laughs> that the, the cost of that was, is it's unsustainable in the long run but but if you flip that round, Barry, it, there there is an enormous cost opportunity as well for an organisation that thinks about their office space and can reconfigure it. Uh, I was an early adopter, I guess, of, of flexible working because we had significant cost pressures in the Scottish and Newcastle days, as in the run up to actually being acquired by by Heineken, and. Um, the challenge that that uh, that we were set was well, how, you know, how can we save money by using the same or less office space, mm -hmm. yep. and that that encouraged us to actually embrace flexible working, because we defined people's roles according to whether they were fixed, flexible, or field based. So if you're fixed, then then, then those tend to be roles such as uh, PAs, for example. And we would provide the equipment that, that people needed accordingly so that you had your own desk and you typically had a monitor and you had a fixed telephone because that's what you needed and you were going to be in the office most days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, something like 70% of our staff were flexible and then you got a mobile phone and you got a laptop and you could pretty much work wherever you wanted yeah. to. And then field-based were salespeople, for example. And there the difference was that legally you had uh, responsibility for creating the home office set up for them, whereas for flexible workers you didn't. But when we did this, there was an initial concern, I think, from employees because it came alongside taking out a lot of the offices, saying to people, from now on you're going to hot desk. So everybody, including the MD, gave up their office. Mm -hmm. No one had an office. What we did have were rooms that you could use for meetings or for making telephone calls or whatever. But other than that, if you're a flexible worker, you had a locker and you would just come in, plug and play, because in those days, Wi-Fi was, was not as well established. So everything was still using Ethernets. But 
that was that was how you worked. So if you think about reconfiguring the space that you have, then if you're you know if you have a commercial imperative there to save money, and I can't believe there are very few organisations that aren't thinking about how they save money at the moment, you can reconfigure the space and probably do it with thirty percent of the space you had previously, yeah. which is yeah. which is which is an enormous saving. But the, other, the, the but the other side of it is it does change the nature of the contract that you have with employees. Sure. Yeah, because suddenly it's not all about this particular space and these particular interactions that I have on a regular basis. And that takes us back to employer branding. If you're clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve and, and broadly how you're trying to achieve it, then you can work your way around what flexible working means much more easily if you've never thought about those issues, which is why I think one of the few silver liners of the pandemic is it has required organizations to think a lot more deeply about the nature of the relationship they have with their employees. Absolutely. It's, it sounds like S&M was very progressive, even if some of that was kind of by nature of, of the acquisition, ultimately. But that sounds well ahead of the game because I think a lot of organisations have only really been considering these things in the last year or so, more so via necessity. I don't know. I, don't, I think probably there's been pockets... Um, of, I guess, experiences like John's and what you've just articulated. I don't know that's entirely unique. I think that a lot of the larger businesses, and it was expedited, as I said, by the COVID piece, but there has been that ability to look at where the cost reduction is. There has been historically huge office space that there's been enormous investment into. Even if you only just look at the Guile in Edinburgh, you can see over the last 20 years how that's evolved mm. and the changes that have had to take place and then look at it post-COVID as well. So it's probably be more relevant for the people who have had a significant outlay in investment in their office space and had to be on the front foot at the beginning of that journey pre-COVID. Yeah. And maybe actually were set up effectively going into it to manage it m with more experience than I guess businesses that haven't had to look at it before. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, we touched a little off there on sort of different expectations by life stage or demographic. Um, and we had a brief discussion about Gen Z and maybe how the youngest generation of the workforce might have a slightly different outlook to their more experienced peers. What else are candidates looking for in your experience, Steph? Like, do they differ by demographic or, or age band? I think so to some degree, naturally, um, because of where you are in your career. But I think also when you're talking about Gen Z, and it, it's difficult to categorise purely by generation. It's, it's, it's a bit broad yeah. brush. But if we're looking at Gen Z just purely based on how they communicate, they truly are digital nomads. They are the people who have come through absolutely dependent on digital communication. And that's been the delivery of all of their life. Even millennials, as a millennial myself, just scratching in there, I was of a digital generation, certainly, but that was a, an evolution from from pre-digital. Yeah. The, the Gen Z now are used to a completely different method of communication, but with that, they want the flexibility that digital brings. They're very capable of adopting it. But what Gen Z also does look for is that piece of authenticity that we were talking about. They're really driven by being able to establish themselves in an authentic environment that reflects themselves and that they can see longevity in and that they can see an investment in their careers in. So that's something that we really need to think about. We can bring them in, they can work remotely very very well, very capably, but they also need to offset that with the feeling that there is investment in them mm -hmm. and a journey for them, which yeah. can be difficult a to really path. demonstrate. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And John, anything to add on this in terms of the, the sort of... I, I, I even wonder if it's psychographic as much as it is demographic in terms of it's an attitude as well are you seeing any trends in in your role 
I mean, I think as, as Steph was saying, it's absolutely the case that as as younger people come come into the uh, recruitment market, that, that you see they bring their their habits with them, and there are so many more choices and opportunities, and so much more knowledge available to people these days than there were maybe thirty years ago. I think that that makes quite a big difference in terms of the choices that you feel that you have. And the way we're characterized, I don't think attitudinally it's changed very much, but it's just you're so much more aware of what is available. And perhaps also younger people are less prepared to put up with being in situations which are, which are substandard. Mm. Uh, I think there was, there was more of a firstly deferential approach that people had, let's say 50 years ago compared to today. And secondly, um, my parents, for example, would have happily done things which were probably not that enjoyable because they were doing them for their family. Yeah. I think younger people don't take the same approach. And and I'm not saying one is right and the other is wrong. I sure. think it's just a, a reflection of, of where people are these days. And when we talk about authenticity, what I've observed is that, is that people quite rightly, when they think about work and they think about the working world, one of the key things they want to know is, well, how will I make a difference? You know, if I join this organization, how will I make a difference to what this organization is trying to achieve? Now, that presupposes you know what the organization is trying to achieve. So that's the first thing that, as an organization, you need to be clear on. This is what we're trying to achieve. Okay, and so if I join you, then what part am I going to play? And am I going to be recognized for that? Am I going to be able to grow as the organization grows? All these things which you might consider common sense and, and somewhat obvious. It's amazing that until recently, many organizations just, just didn't consider them in a joined up way. Yeah, I'm really interested in this sort of whole subject of authenticity and, and sort of delving a bit deeper because I'm sure some of our listeners will have experienced working for a company who didn't necessarily live up to their company values when push came to shove. Uh, and it probably goes without saying that most people would certainly prefer to work for a company who really live their values and don't just put up posters carrying slogans, uh, but they actually act authentically and are true to their stated values. Maybe without naming any names, uh, any stories you can share from the inside or from the outside about companies who haven't been authentic and have been caught out? I think there's ones that are probably quite well documented in the media, probably quite recently. But um, if I think, I, I don't think it's necessarily always a sinister thing that's you know happening underneath uh, the, the, the veneer of a business. I think sometimes what people truly believe is happening in their business, what values they truly believe are being lived in their business are not necessarily at the ground up. Mm -hmm. So particularly when you've had businesses that have grown. Um, I was going to say, there must yeah. be a, a, an element of fast-scale growth that makes that a real challenge. Absolutely, because it's hard to always hire based on values and drivers because when it's candidate short, you have to work with what you've got to mm -hmm. some degree. So you can't always, I suppose, round peg candidates into being your cultural piece. And it might be that, you know, I don't know, the, the values and the, the drivers of the finance team absolutely live the values of the business, but maybe perhaps the sales team don't. And it's counterintuitive and it becomes a bit destructive and it can create different dynamics internally. But it's not something that unless you're constantly asking the question 
and really going into the lived experience of your employees that you'll understand as somebody who's working at an operational level. So that's why when you're looking at your employer brand and we talk about evolving the employer brand and continually evolving it and the authenticity piece, it's really important to be quite fearless in asking the question before people resign, mm-hmm. not when it's the exit interview. That's too yeah. late. It's, yeah. you know, in, in the moment. The biggest challenges for organisations around authenticity is when the values have been created by the senior leadership team and they've been imposed top down. That's Mm -hmm. when it goes really wrong. When we work with organisations, we always say you have to co-create these. You can't just impose them. You might have an idea of what you think is important based on what you're trying to achieve and what your competitive advantage is in in your particular industry. You can't just say to people, as of Monday, I want you to be 43% more innovative. It it just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. So in order for values to accurately reflect what you're trying to achieve and accurately paint the picture of what it's like to work there, in other words, the authentic version of what you are you have to get into listening to your employees and co-creating you have to create some space for them to say well actually this is what we think we do at our best this is what we think it's like to work here and then match that against what you as the senior team think and that's why it's actually quite tricky to get them right because the other filter you have to think about is okay so which of these are different to what my competitors are saying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what one one of the big bugbears I have when I look at values across industries is so many of the same words keep coming up again and again and again. And again, as 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 people who are paid to build brands as marketeers, that to us is a red flag, right? We yeah. think, hang on, this isn't well differentiated. So even if I mean the same thing, even if I don't know, integrity is really important to me, can I find a different word? Or can I find a different take on it that makes me look and sound a little bit different to what everybody else is saying? Because it's more ownable. Yeah, because yeah. if everybody says integrity and trust, and we you know we're creative and so on, then all that happens as a prospective employee is your eyes just glaze over. Well, they're all saying the same thing, so they're all the same. same and then same as buying a food brand in a supermarket. Isn't exactly, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have to look for the points of difference. But you have to do that recognising that it genuinely applies to your organisation. You can't just create them. Mm-hmm. And occasionally when, when we have workshops with businesses, we say to them, all right, the ideal is to have no more than five values because, again, people won't remember them if you have a, a whole long list. So if two or three of those are rooted in reality and you want one or two what we call stretch values, mm-hmm. which aren't true today, but you're going to work on, you're going to do so openly – that's fine. But what you can't do is say, well, you know, our values are listening to people and so on. Um, and there's, you know, famous stories of banks who, on the one hand, say <laughs> we're on your side. Yep. And then you, you walk in and, and the first interaction you have with a bank employee makes it very clear they're not on your side. Yeah. That, that's when it's at its worst because you've not thought about what you're doing and you've not run it through the organisation. Thanks very much. Moving on to what initially sounds like a pretty simple, obvious question, and maybe it is, but I think there's maybe greater complexity to this than it first sounds. Um, Does staff contentment or happiness equate directly to loyalty and retention? Steph? I think it plays a really significant part. I think that um, the days of people spending an entire career of one brand are gone. We've evolved from that. And even as a recruiter, I guess probably there's a nervousness around seeing somebody who's spent an entire career working in one place. Mm -hmm. Um, People don't stay unless they're happy. 
People don't stay unless they're content, but they also don't stay unless they're offered opportunity and development and growth. So they're intrinsically linked. There's the the emotive piece of staying, but there's also, I guess, the the professional development piece of, of continuing and having opportunity. One can't exist without the other. So you'll lose staff for either side of the coin, really. I completely agree. Uh, John? Yeah, I think Steph, Steph has uh, very, very uh, accurately um, summarised the, 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 the connection between happiness and staff loyalty and, and uh, as, as Steph quite rightly says, if, if you genuinely want engagement, then happiness is one component, but it's not the only component. And you do need to factor in these other elements. The one thing I would add is that for a lot of staff, what colours how they feel about the place that they work is their relationship with their line manager. Mm-hmm. So when I was a HR director, we spent a lot of time working with line managers to try to get them to be really good leaders. And in simple terms, if you as a line manager create a really strong, positive, motivating place for your employees to to operate, then you're going to have higher levels of productivity and you're probably going to have happier employees. And conversely, if you treat them really badly, then they're going to leave. And even if you work for the best organization in the world, if you have a lousy line manager... These days, you're not going to hang around. You're, you're going to go. It's yeah. like they say, don't they? They say people don't leave good jobs, they leave bad managers. So exactly. That's always the case. I try and distill these things down. So I I talk a lot about fairness, um, opportunity and autonomy because I think they're not the only things, but all of those things are, are very relevant to to retention and, and loyalty and you know sort of long-term growth ultimately because you're not going to grow as quickly if you're constantly replacing staff. So those are the things that are particularly important to, to me and my organisation. I recently listened to a podcast, uh, not one of my own, uh, <laughs> where one of the guests said something that really quite profound and has stuck with me since. They refer to having evolved into the latest version of themselves. And this struck me quite deeply as I could immediately both relate to this personally, but also professionally as a business owner and a leader. So my related and possibly leading question is, how often should employer brands review their purpose and values in order to continually evolve? John? I think they have to review them on a regular basis. Uh, So I would say once a year normally when when you do things like an employee survey it's a great opportunity to ensure that the key elements of your organization be that your vision or purpose um, and your values remain fit for purpose if you define them well they can last 100 130 years organizations like mars have exactly the same values they really? had That's fascinating. Yeah, when when they started out in the early 20th century however there are some examples where you look at the value and you think we either need to reframe that or reinterpret it because yeah. it's not relevant anymore. Yeah. And in the same way that you know brands, consumer brands continue to evolve, they their essence tends to stay the same, but the application of that essence, if you like, t- can change and needs to change. Same for employer brands. The world is not static. The world is dynamic. As individuals, we're dynamic. To Steph's point, you may well find that five years down the line, you've recruited people mm-hmm. who bring with them different capabilities, but also different needs. Yeah. Yeah. And that may have quite a lasting impact on your organization. It may mean that suddenly you need to reconsider one or two of the values that you had 
so that you remain authentic so that so that the the the, the experience of working there is is still accurately defined by you and of course all of this at the end of the day has to come back to what you're trying to do as an organization and what you believe is your competitive advantage you always have to have that in mind you know values are not created in a vacuum you're not just saying well let's just pick the four or five that we like the most you're doing it if you're doing it well you're doing it with a view to how do these help us to succeed in our chosen industry so they have to have they have to have strategic value uh, as well as being values that reflect the culture of the organization i would also say it's continuous so if you're talking about a review then yes you know there's the annual survey that is going to feed the information for any specific acts of change but it's continuous because you are constantly sense checking with your employees what i said before i guess the reality of being part of the organisation. So if every time you onboard somebody, you have the opportunity to talk about where they've come from, what their experience has been, what has drawn them to join the business, what stood out, what their perception is, and make sure that that is the reality. But also when somebody's leaving a business, to honestly ask the question, and as I said, fearlessly ask the question, why are you leaving? What was your mm. true experience? Yeah. And allow people, the platform, to be very honest and open. That's where your information about what's actually happening in your business comes from to allow you to formulate a relevant response, whether that's the annual response. Well, thank you. I think you've uh, helped me to summarise and simplify into five words, which is uh, review annually, change when necessary. Yeah. Um, so thank you for helping me simplify that in my own head. Um, some really thought-provoking insight there. Thanks for sharing your views so openly. I could certainly probably talk about this for much longer, uh, but maybe we'll save more for a part two at a later date, as I know that many of our listeners like to keep their podcast to commuter length. So it's uh, time for a bit of change of direction as I do my best uh, Desert Island Discs bit. I'd like you both to imagine that your company has given you a sabbatical as a reward for long service and great performance. So, uh, you can thank uh, John and Nicky <laughs> later. I was going to say, I'll let you tell them. <laughs> uh, in this fantasy scenario, uh, money is no object and you're allowed to take one guest, a person or a pet with you. Uh, Steph, first of all, where are you going? Who are you taking with you? And what are you taking with you, whether that be a podcast or a book or maybe it's even a downloaded series of some description? But I can't take one person. I have a husband and I have two children. So even in my wildest fantasy, I can't be leaving them at home. OK, I've, um, I, I, I'll let you take all three. I'm going to look at it from a family perspective because I have to. But um, I'm thinking about this, about you know your roll call through your traditional evening dinner guests and I don't want to do anything too, too contrite, but um, I'm going to say something very of the moment. I'm going to say Ryan Reynolds. All right, yeah. And the reason I'm going to say that is I've been immersed in This Is Wrexham, Wrexham obviously yeah. with um, him and Rob McElhenney investing in the football club. But I think with Ryan Reynolds, he's such an authentic person and personal brand. He has got um, so much entrepreneurial flair and interest in a variety of different organisations. He has passion for the branding and the, the journey of each, but he brings himself to each one. So from that point of view, from a work perspective, he's quite fascinating. He's quite the chameleon whilst being authentic to himself. Your husband um, going to be happy about Ryan Reynolds coming he's along? He's going to be fine about that because what I'm going to say is Ryan can bring Blake, his wife, Blake Lively. They can bring their kids. We could do a family thing. I got you. They ski. You know, he's Canadian. So we'll go skiing. We'll go and do some phenomenal ski trips. So it will be hilarious because he's funny and I think she is too. That That's, that's my... Uh, that sounds like Dreams a pretty wild moment. trip. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good shout, John. Uh, well, leaving family aside for one thing, my, my kids are, are 
grown up and assuming <laughs> this was a sabbatical for let's say three or four weeks where I was going to uh, somehow improve myself as a professional. Firstly, in terms of locations, I would I would certainly head back to Latin America. Uh, it's a wonderful part of the world. Um, I'm fortunate to speak Spanish and, and that adds a richness and a depth mm. to, to, to being based there. And there are some beautiful places to, to go and explore. In terms of who would I take with me, uh, I mean, I guess the, the two people that spring to mind, first, uh, my my partner, Charlie Robertson, who uh, sadly passed away a few years ago. It'd be great to be able to spend a bit more time with him uh, because we we got on fabulously together and uh, and he was he was always fascinated to chew the cud about and with. Um, and the person, I guess, from history that, that people would perhaps recognize and I think would be absolutely fascinating to talk to would be Thomas Edison. Anybody who knows a little bit a little bit about Thomas Edison will know that he was somebody associated with hundreds of inventions. In mm -hmm. some senses, he created the modern world that we live in. But I was fortunate enough a few years ago to go to his laboratories uh, in New Jersey. And, and what you discover is that he was actually the leader of a whole raft of people who were constantly testing and looking for ways forward and he wasn't so much an inventor himself as the leader of a group of inventors and 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 that would have been fascinating to find out because at that point he was pretty unique in what he was doing around the world and i think it also touches on one of one of my other favorite maxims which is if you're going to have breakthroughs then you need to be tolerant of failure um, so sometimes we've, we've talked with organizations about values and they say, well, I, you know, I want my organization to be really innovative. And I always say to, to CEOs who tell me that, well, are, are, you, are you sure you want that? Because that means you have to be tolerant to fail. Yeah. You have to be tolerant yeah. of failure. Yeah. If your organization is not good at dealing with failure, you're never going to have any breakthroughs. Yeah. So, and, and, and you see that writ large when, when you look at how Thomas Edison lived and worked. And the last thing in terms of what I take with me, in terms of business understanding, particularly on a global level, I, I don't think you can beat The Economist. Yeah. Uh, I've been a long time subscriber and uh, the, the quality of information you get is, is is second to none. And I hope if uh, anyone from The Economist is listening, then feel free to send me a free subscription. Exactly. I've been a long time subscriber as well. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to add one because I like to add something to this uh, part of the conversation uh, each podcast. I was recommended a book a couple of years ago now by a lovely chap called Greg Smith and he suggested suggested that I read Radical Candor, which I think is very relevant to today's conversation. So look up Radical Candor by Kim Scott. It's a great book for authentic leadership, essentially. I didn't give you a podcast. The podcast that I would be listening to would be by Malcolm Gladwell, and it's the revisionist history. And just being able to see his take on human behaviours and how we perceive what we've been told and what the reality is of things that have happened historically that have shaped our belief systems is really fascinating. So I'd, Sounds I'd great. flag that one too. I will add it to the list. Thank you so much, Steph, and to John for coming along to the Well Studio for Pleasure. this very insightful and thought-provoking conversation today. 
My thanks again to Keith at Woosh for his production expertise. And as ever, I hope our listeners have enjoyed our conversation and there's a nugget or two from the experiences and opinions that we discussed today that you may recall and refer to in the future. As ever, I'm always keen to hear more from our listeners, so please drop me a line at barry at thelaneagency.com. If you'd like to say hello, tell me what you like or dislike about the pod and anything our listeners would like to hear about for future episodes. Thank you for joining me, Barry Fern from Lane Media on the Leading Conversations podcast. If you've enjoyed the pod, head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or search Leading Conversations wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts and follow for more.